Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. I know I often invite you to remain standing for the reading of the passage. We do have a particularly long passage this morning. So you are welcome to sit if you like. We've got 70, yeah, 70 verses to read. So the passage this morning is from Ezra chapter 2. I would invite you to follow along in your own copy of Scripture. Got Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra is tucked right there between Chronicles and Job. We're looking for that. Ezra chapter 2. Hear now God's word. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehun, and Baana, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775, the sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakkai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adin, 454. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bedzai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibbar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netopha, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Arim, Hephera, and Be'eroth, 743. The sons of Rama and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sana'a, 3,630. 
the priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Aku, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hegabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hegab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Aiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gatsum, the sons of Utsa, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Bisai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Me'unim, the sons of Nephisim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basiluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Ya'ala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pochereth Hatzabayim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Karub, Adan, and Emmer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Hebiah, the sons of Hakkoz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 1, 000, sorry, 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. Lord God, would you open our eyes this morning that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This strikes us, most of us, I reckon, as one of the more tedious passages in Scripture. And I reckon some of you who determined at the beginning of the passage that you would stand for the reading may have been regretting it by around verse 45 or so. I didn't look to see if people started sitting down partway through. But that leads us to ask, what does a list of unfamiliar names in the middle of an unfamiliar book have to tell us about God's faithfulness? The long-winded way of saying, okay, why do we care? Right? Ezra 2, these names, these numbers, these places, why does that matter for us? Why is that recorded for us in Scripture? There are lots of reasons that you might put together a list of people, right? If you're with family, right, maybe you're at a large family reunion and you start asking your cousin, who's that, right? And that face looks familiar, but I don't know who that is, right? And your cousin, who's in the know, starts to tell you, well, this is so-and-so, and that's so-and-so, and that's who they're related to, and actually, they shouldn't be here anyway after what they said to Grandma last year. And that's the part of the family that moved to that other town, and we haven't seen them in a while. It's good to see them this year. And you start to get a list that takes shape, and some of it's based on relationship, and some of it's based on place, and some of it's based on events that happened in the family And in that list, you begin to get a narrative of who you are and who's related to whom that that tells the story of the family. There's lots of reasons that list might be put together, lots of purposes you might put it to, lots of uses you might make of it. Lists of people and places and family relationships like this, right, They serve the purpose of a census, knowing who's there and when and who lived with whom and trying to reconstruct those things. It's used for tax records. And the Persians would be interested in taxing these people. So they want to know who's there. Serves as a record of landowners. Who owned what piece of property when? We're going to start to restore people to their property. We need to know. Who can serve as priests? Something that becomes important later in this book is who's actually authorized by the Persian government to come back and begin to rebuild, rebuild the house of God and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This list here in Ezra chapter 2 bears this diverse character of a list that's brought together from different sources defined by different relationships and put to a variety of uses. But as it's given to us here at this place in the book, it serves a larger purpose. It's not interested in taxes. It's not interested in the ownership of land, but it's interested in displaying to us God's faithfulness to his people, 
across time, across generations, and across geographic boundaries. So one thing we see clearly reflecting on this list, among other things, is that the people God brings back to the land are the children and grandchildren of those he saw exiled into Babylon. So that as we've remarked before, as he was faithful to his word to take them out of the land, so he is also here, he has been faithful to his word to bring them back. And there's a continuity between the people he removed and the people he returns. So the first thing I want us to see in this chapter is an observation that God works through families. This is the ordinary means that God works for raising up a godly seed in the coming generation. We see in this list of names a connection to people who were in the land before the exile. And as God has disciplined their fathers and their grandfathers, so he has fulfilled his word to these families to bring these people back because God works through families. And there's a continuity across generations in God's dealing with his people. This is an important thing to remember. It's an important thing to remember as you reflect on your own life, the life of your parents and grandparents. As your children grow up, you're concerned for them, for your grandchildren. How is God at work in my family? What about what's happening at this moment? And it's an important reminder to some of us who who don't have the kind of fancy and um, dramatic testimonies of the Lord's work in our lives. Some of you may have stories about being involved in a horrible sin and going down a very dark path. And then in a moment, the Lord got hold of you and turned you around and brought you to himself. For others of us, that's, that's not the kind of testimony we have. I remember as a teenager and as a college student listening to dramatic stories of how God had worked in the life of my friends and those I knew, and I was kind of jealous. I wanted a testimony like that. I didn't want the baggage that came with a testimony like that as I saw that work itself out in my friends' lives, in the lives of their families. There's something beautiful and wonderful about that kind of testimony of being transferred from a very obvious place in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's taken me a long time to see that there's also an incredible beauty in a testimony that bears witness to God's work through families, among generations of his children. There's something no less beautiful and incredibly wonderful and hope and life-giving 
as you think about your children, your grandchildren, and future generations, to reflect on your own life or the lives of those you know and to see how God has been faithful for generations beyond measure, going back in time. Perhaps it was your parents who had that kind of wild testimony. Perhaps it's your grandparents. Perhaps it goes back hundreds of years. Or perhaps hearing that kind of testimony gives you hope as you reflect on what God will do for your children and for their children for hundreds of years into the future. God brings people into the kingdom from outside. And we see witness to that elsewhere in this passage. But God also works in the lives of his people across generations. We see that here. We also see God working through families who can't trace their lineage. Some of the people who come don't know They don't have the records. They've lost their birth certificate. Their grandfathers didn't write things down. We see that in verse 59. So that they're known not by their family, not by the town their grandfathers dwelt in in the land, but by the places they're returning from. In Babylon, Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emmer, they couldn't prove their father's houses or their descent. They couldn't demonstrate on paper that they belonged to Israel. But they're included among those who return. There's a question mark over their heritage, but they're enfolded into the people of God who return to the land. They don't know who their father was. That's an important question in the South, right? Especially if you're looking for a job, right? Who's your father? What did he do, right? That's how people introduce themselves, right? I'm so-and-so. I'm the son of or the cousin of or the grandson of so-and-so. And these folks didn't have that. And yet they're brought in. They rub shoulders alongside Those who do, they can't trace their lineage back, but they find a place among the people who return from Babylon. But it doesn't just include God's working through families who can trace generations back. God's working through families who've lost their records or are establishing generations going forward. God also works through families of foreigners who have come and cast everything on the Lord. There's a large number of non-Israelite names in the passage, especially among what are called the temple servants from verse 33 and following. We don't know who Hebrew names very well. Right? But those who do know Hebrew, they know uh, the Babylonian and Persian languages are able to look at this list and say, you know, these are, these are not 
Israelite names. These are names of other people groups, some of them named after people we know were conquered during David's time, by the time of the kings. But these people have found their place among God's people so that their descendants are among those that the Lord has brought back from Babylon to repopulate the land. God works through families. He works through families going back thousands of generations. He works through families going back one or two generations. He works through families that have gaps and question marks and dark times in their history. And he works through families when those families first come into the people of God and build a legacy that will then carry forward. A hope-filled observation for us from this long list of unfamiliar names. God works through families. God also restores a whole community. Pay attention to the list of names, the way they are grouped together. We have leaders. We have lay people, the number of the men of the people of Israel, verse 2. We have priests, Levites who served alongside the priests. We have temple servants, servants of Solomon. We have these people who seek to find a place with incomplete information. A whole people and the servants of Solomon among them. Everything needed for a functioning community. Leaders and lay people working class and priests, those with wealth and with connection to the land, everything needed for agriculture and for the jumpstart of a community that's going to take root in the land that they are returning to and will stay there for generations so that they can establish a foothold and remain. God doesn't allow a trickle to come back with a big check from the Persian government, but no means to support themselves once they get there. But God sees fit to gather the makings of a new society in Babylon, stirs them up and brings them back to the land, where together they have the means to build a new people, a returned, functioning society, providing for one another, supporting one another, worshiping the Lord together in Jerusalem and its surrounds. God works through families. God restores a whole community. There's a very interesting omission. As we ponder God restoring a whole community, what's what's missing? We have Solomon's servants, right? Those who functioned as a part of the royal administration. But we have no king. We have mention of the sons of Hezekiah, but no tracing out 
of that family line beyond that remark. We have Zerubbabel, who's the son of Shealtiel, who's the, the heir to the throne of David. But that's never made much of in Ezra, Nehemiah. It's never something that the author calls attention to. Because God works through families. He restores a whole community, but, but he does this. He works with or without a king. It raises an important point that, that we see clearly as we read the Bible as a whole, as we reflect on church history, that we cannot measure God's faithfulness merely by looking at the political circumstances of God's people. We see that here. This is a a point of tension at various points in in the history of God's people because his people will try to do that. Say, there's no king on the throne. I thought you made an eternal promise. Are you... Are you not being faithful to us? Are you not providing for and protecting your people? It becomes a burning question as they look for the king they expect to lead them. And it's part of the expectation around Jesus in the New Testament. They're looking for a king. They're looking for a political administration. And they're frustrated but what they find in Christ instead. God brings them back from exile without a king. And he doesn't give them one in the short term. And in the New Testament, right, if we are to to measure God's faithfulness to the early church in terms of their political circumstances, well, that paints a pretty depressing picture as they're spreading around the Mediterranean and start to capture the attention of Rome, and then they're suppressed and persecuted at various places around the Mediterranean by the people and sometimes actively by the government or by Caesar himself. And yet within a few generations, the entire Roman Empire is turned upside down. Christianity becomes the official religion of Rome. And as Rome is sacked by the Goths and some of the pagan citizens of Rome look around and say, you know, this is the fault of the Christians because we stopped worshiping Jupiter and the the rest of the pantheon. Augustine can say, that's very interesting because you and your friends sought sanctuary in the churches. And the Goths who worship Christ spared you because of that. When did Rome and its enemies before the time of Christ ever see such a thing? We cannot measure God's faithfulness by the political circumstances of his people. It's a good reminder to us that whatever political power or oppression is our lot, Jesus Christ is seated now at the right hand of God, 
reigning in power. We are not our own defenders. We're not the guarantors of our own safety. We may be right to recognize the danger posed to the church by by winds of change, by this or that administration, by the outcome of this or that war, or by policies put into place by our leaders. And yet we may be comforted that the church has often risen with greatest strength and spread with the utmost success in times where they seemed powerless and actively persecuted. As a a metrical setting of Psalm 146 put it, put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He will die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. God will rule, he will govern, he will defend and protect his people with or without the king. With or without a ruler of their choosing. With, alongside, or even against those who govern them in this or that time. What do we see in this lengthy passage full of unfamiliar names. We see a reminder that God works through families. We see a reminder that as God did for them in restoring a whole community, so his care for us encompasses all of our needs. Needs we don't even anticipate. And we see here and surrounding that God does these things for his people regardless of and in spite of their political circumstances. We can take great comfort then that Christ is our king that the God who is faithful to them is faithful to us. And he will provide for all of the needs of Christ's church. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these gospel reminders from this early chapter of the book of Ezra. We pray that you would press these things into our hearts. That you would comfort us with the knowledge and assurance that Christ reigns as king now. We pray that you would teach us to look to you for provision and protection. And not place our confidence in worldly power. And Father, we pray We pray in thanks, we pray in hope that you work through godly families. We pray that you would raise up a godly seed in this and the next generation. 
that you would answer our prayers for our children and our grandchildren. That you would draw them to yourself. Show them your goodness and your beauty. And grant that they too would be marked by prayers for their children for coming generations. We ask all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.